individuals like yourself. Man, thank you. That's a that's a high honor. I definitely appreciate you. Um, you uh, you know mentioned also that settler colonial uh, the settler colonial project that we call America is an example of class collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love this idea, um, especially whenever you look at the Confederacy and how many of them weren't you know they they couldn't afford to uh, uh, participate in our enslavement, but just the idea that one day they'll be able to was enough for them to fight for the right to own us as property. Um, if you can, can you expound, expound on the idea that um, America is an example of, uh, you know, European class collaboration? Well, you mentioned the uh, Civil War, 1861 mm-hmm. to 1865, the so-called Confederate States of America, which of course included North Carolina. Right. They seek to break away from the United States because they wanted to perpetuate the enslavement of Africans forevermore. As your comment suggests, uh, a disproportionate percentage of the Euro-American men who are fighting to preserve slavery actually weren't slave owners. Mm. But they thought that the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if they won that war, would be that they would have the right as well to own enslaved Africans. And that was worth fighting for. However, as my book on the 16th century suggests, if you go back to the first incursion, the first invasion of the English uh, into what they call North Carolina, because even though we talk about Virginia in 1607, actually in the 1580s, there had been an attempt uh, to build a settlement in the coast of what is now North Carolina. And if you look at the class lineup, of these folks, they are coming from various class backgrounds. Mm. They're shopkeepers, they're poor, they're lumpen elements, lumpen elements meaning, you know, prostitutes, thieves, uh, etc. And all sponsored by the 1%. But the I, the 1% in London, that is mm-hmm. the, the investor class. And that's what I mean by class collaboration. You have people from different classes who are collaborating with one another for a mutual benefit, the mutual benefit being uh, taking the land of the indigenous population. And with a little bit of luck and a lot of pluck, they'd be able to get Africans to work for free. (laughs) Now, what's interesting about this idea of class collaboration is that uh, you cannot begin to understand the United States even today without understanding class collaboration. How else can you understand the Trump coalition? 74, 75 million strong. It's mathematically imprecise to suggest that in a country of 330 million like this, that only the 1% constitutes 74 to 75 million. That that math does not add up. Uh, Obviously, as we all know, there are a considerable number of working class people in the Trump coalition, middle-class people in the Trump coalition. And that's the nature of settler colonialism because the idea historically has been that there are antagonisms between certain classes. For example, landlords and tenants. Uh, The landlord wants to raise the rent. The tenant wants to keep the rent flat, or even have it go down. That's an antagonistic contradiction that leads to a class struggle 
between landlords and tenants. Likewise, if you're working at a factory, the boss is trying to drive down your wages so he can make more profit. You want your wages to rise so that you can buy toys for your kids and books for your kids, et cetera. Theoretically, that's an antagonistic contradiction. But what happens under settler colonialism is that uh, the, the bosses and the European workers oftentimes collaborate. Right. Because, uh, they see a mutual advantage in terms of taking the land from the Native Americans. And this brings me back to what I was talking about a few moments ago, uh, how many of our friends on the left have misinterpreted U.S. history. To give you one example amongst many, I gave you an example of the Jewish question and how it has manifested with regard to the building of settler colonialism, because Jewish people were in on the ground floor with regard to building settler colonialism here in North America, Unlike in Spain, where the Catholics engaged in an inquisition with regard to the Jewish people. That is to say, you had to convert to Catholicism or flee, which many of them did, to London, to Turkey, Turkey, or you're tortured until you say, I'm Catholic, <laughs> or you're executed. Right. Whereas England took a different route, and it said, no, you can in on the ground floor, and that, of course, leads directly fast forward to 1947-1948 when the United States backs the creation of State of Israel, or to 2023, when the United States is still uh, supporting Israeli genocide. Now, our friends on the left, this is the mistake they make. They look at how Jewish people have been treated, say, in Germany, for example, where there was a Holocaust, six million people executed. 1941, actually 1933 to 1945. And also you had a similar process unfolding in the Netherlands, in France, in Croatia, in Greece, in Bulgaria, etc. And so they say, oh, okay, I, United States is a progressive country because unlike in Europe, the Jewish people here were not subjected to a Holocaust. They forget the next step, which is that the, the Jewish people were in on the ground floor with regard to the expropriation of the, the indigenous population mm, right. and the enslavement of the Africans. The number two official uh, or number three official in the Confederate States of America, Judah Benjamin, J-U-D-A-H, Benjamin, a Secretary of State under President uh, Jefferson Davis, the head of the Confederate States of America. He manages to flee. He, he happens to be Jewish, by the way, which is why I mentioned him. Or if you look at Florida, uh, David Uley, Y-U-L-E-E, -E, Jewish American, a leading figure in uh, the Sunshine State. And so Jewish people were involved in this project of settler colonialism. That's one of the reasons they weren't subjected to a Holocaust. Now, to be sure, uh, there were bumps along the road because, uh, for example, um, due south, from where you're sitting in Atlanta, uh, you may want to consult, look up the Leo Frank case. He okay. was a Jewish man in Georgia who was lynched uh, because many backwards Euro-American Christians said that he was killing Christian girls. 
so that he could drink their blood. Believe wow. it or not, he's a vampire. Wow. They lynched him. And what, what's interesting about the Leo Frank case in particular, and, and I must say, uh, for your scholars in the audience, uh, an adequate book has yet to be written about this case, is that <laughs> so Leo Frank tried to blame the killing of the Christian girl circa 1915, Mary Fagan, on the black janitor. Wow. And what's interesting <laughs> is that the racists, Euro-American Christians, they believe the black janitor over the Jewish man, interestingly enough. Wow. It's, it's, it's very deep. It's very yeah. interesting. And what happens with the lynching of Leo Frank, that leads to many affluent Jewish Americans beginning to fund anti-lynching movements mm -hmm. because they recognize that they could be lynched too. And that's a step forward in terms of a blow against lynching uh, in this country. But to make a... a, a a lengthy story shorter, uh, class collaboration has been the essence of this settler state known as the United States of America. Not only do you see it in the Trump coalition, you saw it on January 6, 2020, mm -hmm. uh, with the attempt to prevent the peaceful transfer of power and make sure that Trump continues on. Uh, if you look at the class lineup of those who were arrested on January 6, you have people coming in on private planes, for example, wow. CEOs. you have uh, shopkeepers, you have uh, military veterans, you have cops, you have working class people, D-class elements, lumpen elements, once again. And so it's a very diverse class array, almost all of whom were of European descent, needless to say, mm -hmm. although uh, there are a couple of Negroes yeah. <laughs> as well, which is not surprising because uh, I, I think that going forward to this 2024 election, many Black people understandably are very nervous about what's going to happen. And so many Black people say, maybe I need to cut a deal. <laughs> right, right. this which I totally understand. But we'll see what happens. What is the underlying uh, purpose of buying power? Like, what is buying power? And uh, you stated it was a strategy in marketing and advertising to redirect ad revenue towards commercial media outlets. Um, I thought that was um, obviously in the book goes into that as well. But uh, if you could, for those who may not... Um, you know, have read have read the book or seen that bill? Could you delve into that a little bit more and and expound on how that operates in practice? No, yeah, thank you. And and again, yeah, you're right. Shout out to Black Men Build for sure, and I appreciated that chance to build with mm -hmm. them. Uh, so so on the one hand, the popular version of what buying power or spending power or purchasing power is is money that people have left over to spend. Uh, as they see fit, discretionary spending. And it's an, it's it's thought to be an actual number that represents actual uh, uh, dollars. And in some cases, people confuse it with wealth. They confuse it. By design, it's intended to be confused. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not really what it is in in the way that it has been, as I talk about it, weaponized against Black people. So that's where the myth and the propaganda come in. When it's directed at Black people, it's been over the last 100, 150 years turned into this idea that buying power represents some 
latent, untapped economic strength that black right. people squander right. Uh, right? with some financial illiteracy and ignorance. And that's not, that's not what it is. By the way, and it just so happens I watched the movie. I don't know if you or your your audience have seen this 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 movie that came out this year, the the Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm no, I'm I've it's on my radar. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to be watching it soon. So it's not a spoiler for me to say this, but mm -hmm. but if you watch the movie, you see a version of this myth developed as it was developed against indigenous people in a in a way back in the day. Uh, this idea that that the Osage around the 1920s had had come into money. I won't. Mm -hmm. I'll let you all see. You can you know, read the. You know, see the movie. I'm not gonna spoil it. But but the point is, part of the way white folks justified abusing them and taking over their uh, uh, what money they had through political power and public policy, which I'm sure we can come back to, is ultimately what I'm saying. We should be struggling for. Uh, was to say that the Osage were financially illiterate. They just didn't know what they were doing. They they're immature. They're silly. They're simple minded. They 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 you know if we don't take care of their money for them, they're just gonna they're gonna squander it. And of course, that's exactly what Israelis said once upon a time about Palestinians. That's what it's a it's the feature of colonization. Is my point. Mm. So now we get a we have a, a, a the most heightened and sophisticated version targeting black people here, uh, uh, with this idea that black people are only poor or or somehow disadvantaged because they are themselves ignorant right. and financially illiterate. Uh, uh, and that's part of the mythology that is used. So that's what I'm trying to talk about. Where did this, how did this get developed, popularized? Uh, uh, and, and why have so many over uh, so long a period of time been, been encouraged to be confused by this? So that's, that's. Yeah. In short, what I'm trying to do. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it, it's kind of interesting, like earlier, uh, right before we got on, um, I saw uh, President Biden um, say that, uh, you know, right now across America, wages for workers are up and black wealth is up a record 60 percent. Uh, from before the pandemic and it's like where do they get these numbers from and what do these what are these numbers actually are what are they supposed to represent because we know that um when we look at the material conditions of our people um yeah, where's that 60 percent at you know what i mean um i guess that's more of the myth though right yeah and i i uh the the whatever you're referencing i haven't looked at so i can't Mm -hmm. speak to to how they constructed that but uh uh it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't sound like it matches what i have been reading from other people's economic research uh whether it's uh uh pick i mean Diedrich Muhammad Derek Hamilton mm -hmm. the NCRC the the National Bureau of Economic Research the 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 Economic Policy Institute I mean, there are all these sources that, I mean, uh, 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 even, even um, I was just looking at the, the wealth division in this country, uh, the, the wealth breakdown in this country, where 0.1% of this country has more, has, has six times the wealth of the bottom half of the country. Wow. So, yeah, whatever they're claiming about has happened. And then, you know, but but remember, if if they're saying 60% since the pandemic has, in, in, of an increase, 
we're still dealing with the complete erasure of black wealth after the 2008 crash where most mm-hmm. of the black and brown wealth was destroyed in, in, in because of the homeowners the 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 housing value right. collapse so and then and then by the way as you just were basically saying i mean most of the, the data is important to study i think and to be aware of but i think many most can just look out their window and just look at the lives that they and their families and and communities are leading and see like come on man what are we talking about here what 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 is this great new new day right uh that that people are supposed to be experiencing um what i think is more important is to look at the amount of wealth and this is something i've increasingly wanted to be doing the amount of wealth being created that is housed in that 0.1% uh who by themselves it was it was shown have 12 and a half percent of all the wealth in the country mm. and the bottom half of the population has only two and a half percent of the wealth so that's so so the point one again point one percent and 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 we're talking about almost 200 trillion dollars wow and they're saying globally in the next 20 years i just read the 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 global accumulation of private wealth is going to be just under 700 trillion dollars you know where it's going but whenever you're obviously dealing with technology technology through a purely capitalist uh standpoint without any type of culture that centers the planet and the humans that exist within it you're going to have these problems um it it brings me to my next question um i'm definitely you know excited to hear your answer on this um i was um in a in a speech i was reading the other day uh it was um, from Du Bois to the uh, Association of Negro Social Science Teachers. Um, he was talking about, um, and this was later on, I think, believe in 1960, uh, closer to the end of his life. Um, well, he, he, he spoke on while we became more assimilated into American society, uh, we would begin to lose who we are culturally. In um, 2024, do you think this is where we are as a people, especially considering the growing movements that deny that African-Americans are even of African descent? Yes, um, but I want to frame it this way. Mm -hmm. That homo sapiens, well, nature in general, Mm -hmm. there's a natural tendency to want to not do work <laughs> and get the most you know outcome out of everything everything is trying to fall into an equilibrium <laughs> and quiet is kept most humans don't want to fight can you expound on that son what i mean is that the vast majority of us does not want to constantly come up against resistance. Yeah. They want to be able to fall into an equilibrium and not risk, you know, or, or you know, not not have a great risk of, of losing, you know, much of their material uh living or whatnot, mm-hmm. including, of course, their life. Right. 
So that's just a human thing. That's nature in general. That's right. the whole concept of entropy and you know everything like the the smell. Like once you un un uh, hook the bottle or whatnot, and then the smell comes out and it can't go back in. Mm -hmm. but it tries itself to fill out the space in a in an equilibrium manner. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so. There, there are those of us who have this spirit of we love to fight. That's <laughs> yeah, what we, do. we wake up in the morning, we exercise, you know, we, we practice, we, you know, do what yeah. I, yeah, you know, 42, 50, yeah, 52, 52 blocks, blocks going yeah. you know, we, that's, that's what we do, we love it, yeah. But the vast majority of us are not like that, right? So the transatlantic slave holocaust stripped most african people you know of their sense of agency and sovereignty and the like mm -hmm. and we just ultimately want to be left alone to our own Hell device yeah right and we just want to live comfortably we don't want no smoke and, you know, we just gravitate to where the power and the prestige is. Mm -hmm. And so if the European currently has the power and prestige, then we want to lean there because they already have a system in place that rewards people for assimilating to their culture and ideas. Right. And there was, in the beginning, they didn't want that for us. So they did everything in their power to keep us separated from them. Right. You can't get into our schools. You can't live into our neighborhoods. You can't even drink out of the same water fountain as we do. And this forced this population of African people to only deal with themselves. So their culture and ideas and everything was, was built upon us existing and being forced to only live amongst ourselves. So, you know, we had to, we couldn't get into their ice cream shop, so we had to start our own. We couldn't get their money, we had to start their own banks. Right. You know, we had to start our own construction, you know, ambulance, funeral services, and the like. You know, we had to do things our own way. And so that fostered, a, you know, a greater sense of business in terms of creativity and identity for African people. But you know, we always like to compare ourselves to to others, and it seems that they are doing better than us. So we need to get access to what they have access <laughs> to. Right, right, right. And so what we do is we striving to assimilate into their spaces. Mm -hmm. And the more and more barriers we broke down, the more and more people wanted to leave and be disassociated with black folks because we are the bottom of the tier in in the social hierarchy in this country mm -hmm. and so any proximity to whiteness appears in at least in their eyes guarantees them greater comfort yep you know and prestige mm -hmm. and then of course you have these these revolutionaries who who pop up every generation you know, fighting against that, your Malcolms, mm -hmm. your, you know, your um, uh, 
Stokely Carmichael's, your your Stephen Beagles, and Absolutely. all this other kind of stuff, right? Uh, your Harriet Tubman's, your you know, all these you know, trying to trying to trying to get more on the self reliant, you know, and so out of that tradition comes Afrocentricity mm -hmm. on the educational front and and all this other kind of stuff, right? And so we suffer from this, their ice water is colder than ours. And we right. believe the myths that they told us about themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we <laughs> wanted to be closer to them. And that's, mm -hmm. that is what's problematic. And so it's been a long process, but to your question and specifically in 2024, I think that that project of assimilation has, you know, reached a fever pitch to where now when you're talking about black businesses and self-reliance and agency, they're thinking that you're talking about devil worship. Right. Right. And you have it even to the point now where like I'm noticing, especially among women, mm -hmm. um, like just just scroll down your TikTok page. Mm -hmm. and, and hear the way that a lot of people are talking more of us are even talking like you know and i just don't understand why we right. that is that is a you know it's not an issue of of of, of perfect versus imperfect english or whatnot it's imitating it, you're imitating someone you're imitating like that that corporate karen yeah, yeah. So like that's become the standard voice right and not understanding that your power is in your people and your culture mm. and so what we have to do is to gain power mm -hmm. with an african-centered mindset so that we become the prestige right right you know, and so too for too long it's just been these these, you know, people with loud mouths mm -hmm. saying but not doing anything because the people respond to how is your living? Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. Because they for them it's about comfort. Mm -hmm. Right? Like how ultimately how does this this African, this black stuff translate into food, clothing, and shelter? Right. And and good human relations. That's ultimately what they're asking. Mm -hmm. And so this this has to be put more prominently, you know, in uh, the discourse. Right. The material conditions of the yeah. people. Exactly. And so we don't got to be nothing super deep like, you know, the <laughs> ancient Egyptian, you know, the crown head, like, you know, they, they had conversations with Jehuti. Like, like, no. They didn't got to do all that, right? You gotta, it's, it's, that's not what was going on. That was, that was their, like, ancient Egypt is a perfect example of how relying on your own culture you know, can uh, helps you to prosper because mm. the ancient Egyptian has the minds of the world mm -hmm. and they, they um, try to invade or force anything on you. Mm, right, right. The, the, the culture was just so fascinating. The thought was just so fascinating that 2,000 plus years later, after the, the final temple was closed, 
you know, we're still talking about them, debating about who they mm -hmm. are and what color right. they are and what this means and deciphering, having intellectual discussions on my art. Right, and, right, right. Right. But it is so they even have an aesthetic mm -hmm. that that is grounded in them. And so people are copying their aesthetic. Right. And so um, if I may share yeah. screen again. Mm -hmm. Look, the everybody has this opportunity to be a Jay-Z or or Beyonce and become billionaires, yeah. right? It 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 takes away from the those statistics that you mentioned to where this is not the this is a this is an uh, an outlier, right? This is not the norm for black society. And I feel like those type of tropes are often used against us whenever we attempt to show uh, the inequality within all the institutions of this country. They'll they'll point to somebody successful in that in that field and say, hey, they did it, you can as well. Not looking at the systemic factors of how someone may grow up, the conditions of poverty, the conditions of the criminal justice system, all these different conditions um, to get thrown out of the window because it's like, look, that one person made it, um, you can too. And so whenever we are looking at the collective, whenever we are looking at our people and where we want to be, um, this idea of uh, nothing's wrong. Look at look at the billionaires in our society that are black. Look at the millionaires in our society that are black, and use them as the barometer in which to judge us all. Obviously, is problematic, and I'm pretty sure you've seen it as well. But whenever you do see it, like, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I feel like it's unfortunate because on one end, and I, you know, I wrote one time about. This theory of black excellence, right? Mm -hmm. Black excellence is a double-edged sword. Absolutely, we're celebrating black excellence because it's important because it shows that white people are wrong, that their stereotypes are wrong. But at the same time, what it does is it makes it seem that anyone that didn't reach that, mm. that it's because of them. Right. So that's why, and like one of the. Uh, the structures I'm studying is just world beliefs. And that's another one. When people believe the world is just and they see an injustice, they blame the victim in order to maintain that worldview. Mm -hmm. So if we see an Oprah, that doesn't mean every black woman can do that. And it's not because of a lack of skill or intellect. What we really have to talk about is access to opportunities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And whenever you speak about that access of op the, well, the not, us having access of opportunity constantly being denied or constantly having to to fight you know many different obstacles to to eat, make the playing field you know fair right to make the to you know we're always taught as 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 black people from the time we're young you got to work extra hard to get where you are like we've we've all heard that from our parents grandparents um and they were speaking from experience they were speaking from you know what they know um but this uh, this idea that the world is just there is a propaganda that goes along with that for people and that enables people to actually believe that what do you think are some of the ways this society uh gets people to believe that hey this is a just and equitable world uh, and if you haven't made it it's your fault I think it's some some aspects of different parts of the culture. So obviously it comes from this Protestant uh, hard work ethic. 
uh, from off the plantations, like this early idea of of American capitalism that's rooted in slavery. Mm -hmm. So they they kind of taught that as soon as slavery ended, they started stereotyping black people as lazy and saying that if you just work hard, you'll be able to get everything. Never wanting to admit that everything they had was built off of the enslaved <laughs> people. Mm -hmm. So it's all about like cheating in a race and then seeing how much you can maintain in the end of it by lying. Right. Um, I think that's the unfortunate part is a lot of people are really not aware of uh, of how racism continues to impact black people even black people um because even i remember being in elementary school and um some kid told me well you know america is a free country and i kind of just <laughs> like what do you mean in the state of louisiana there's still an exemption <laughs> for the 13th amendment so everybody's mm -hmm. not actually free you can still enslave someone if they're convicted of a crime in louisiana Absolutely. We'll get to it in a minute, but with Boyce, right? And his response on Willie D's, uh, it's like, does he is he even aware of any other system outside of this predatory system that we know as capitalism, right? Is he even does he have any even just a surface knowledge on any alternative? Because you know, I don't want to get too far into that with, with boys because we will in a second. But as somebody who uh, is an educator, somebody, you know, a professor at Morgan State, the idea that as an, if you study economics, you're only going to study, uh, you know, capitalism and how to, uh, I guess, understand the inner workings of capitalism without any alternatives. Like, I mean, what does that say? So, so let me be clear. I don't have an economics degree, so sure. I don't know exactly how. But what I but but uh, uh, I've read enough of the uh, mainstream discussion of economics as part of my own work uh, to to know that there's at least several problems. But I, I think of it in terms. You know, you mentioned Morgan State. I think you know I make this point all the time since my building happens to be right next door. Uh, but there is no building for political economy hmm. there's no there's no uh which is the 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 this the often associated with marx's study of the interrelationship of of power uh to the economy and the interrelationship of politics and economics and, and as, as opposed to political science over here and economics over here but there's an interrelationship and they are based on power mm -hmm. uh achieving power so but they, you know, there's no building or track or school dedicated to Marxists or communists, socialists. Uh, there isn't even one overtly dedicated to teaching capitalism either. Right. But there is a business school. Hmm. There is a business degree. There's a master's in business people can get. I'm not aware of a master's in communism or socialism or uh, <laughs> that you can get. My point is, is that what I think is a bigger or part of the problem is that there is no overt, clear study of capitalism, much less communism. Mm. Right. I used to use the documentary, The Corporation, in my classes all the time. And part of what they do in that documentary is ask all of these, you know, economists and and business people and Harvard this and Princeton that and Wall Street this, you know, what is a corporation? And all of them on camera struggle hmm. to come up with an answer. 
And I think we have the same problem with capitalism. I don't think most people actually understand what capitalism is, what a capitalist is, the the immaterial or social nature of capitalism. In other words, I think it's a mistake to describe it strictly as an economic system. It's an, it's an entire colonizing social apparatus. Absolutely. Right. And that's why Marx and Engels talked about, you know, we studied money because that's what determines social inter social relationships, not because we want to study economics. My point is, in all of that, is just to simply say that there is no overt and institutional designed effort to teach people anything about how the economy that currently exists works, much less anything else or alternatives. And that's why I often have asked people when they condemn you know, when you hear the popular references to what com what people think communism or socialism is, I, you know, what have you read right. on it? Right. Where are you getting your definition? And very rarely do I do I hear a response that 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 suggests to me any real attempt to study any of this. So what we get is the propaganda, which mm -hmm. created by capitalists for a capitalist economy and a capitalist society. So. So yeah, it is it is absolutely possible to get many degrees, all the degrees in economics, and not understand how capitalism works, or certainly have any real understanding of communism or socialism, or the histories about any of this. Similarly, you you could get an Africana studies, you could be or or a media studies degree, and not be introduced to the radical traditions in those fields either. Right. So that's a problem with with these institutions to begin with and why as part of a segue for you, it's, it doesn't make sense for people to wave around a degree and not wave around their actual work or argument. Right. All right. Before, before we, before we go there, cause I definitely want to go there. Cause I have my own criticisms of him even before that, you know what I mean? But, um, for most, all right, within the Africana studies paradigm, right. Most I, and you know, obviously, it's, I'm, I'm maybe somewhat of an overgeneralization, um, but within an Africana studies paradigm, would you say that's where most Black folks, even like, I, I guess, became aware and knowledgeable about alternatives to capitalism through people like you know uh, Walter Rodney, CLR James, Paul Robeson. Du Bois and things of that nature, would you say that it's been Black studies that has, uh, for the most part, what ha has introduced us to these ideas of alternative ways of, of, of you know, I don't want to say, I don't even want to call it a system, but alternative ways of, of, of living? So I think I have to answer, the short answer is no. So institutionalized Black or Africana studies, I think, has not done or been able to mm -hmm. sufficiently teach the full range of the Black radical tradition. Mm -hmm. In fact, there, you could argue that there has been, within Black studies, an effort to suppress the engagement of African people around the world with communism and Marxism mm -hmm. and socialism because it's seen as Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. And and there's so there is so so hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. So mm -hmm. so so 
I think black studies has always had this this sort of internal struggle with that. And I think to this at this point, I think it would have to be conclude. You would have to conclude that black studies has not done the work of of teaching people what has taught people about to the extent that people do know at all about these histories is the 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 broader expanse of that black radical tradition and the activist world and the 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 uh, radical intellectual world mm -hmm. uh, who uh, not only produced some of those figures that you talked about, of course, Du Bois, Robeson. Claudia uh, uh, Jones, Jones and many yep. others, they, they evolved before what we would now know of as institutionalized black studies. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and we're, we're, you know, so it's, it's, it's black people engaging all forms of radicalism, some of which includes communism and socialism that has, has made that. And, and it's, it's, I think, again, unfortunately, black studies has not been able to mm -hmm. organize itself to institutionalize a proper continual study of, of those people so yeah yeah i know um, one uh one of the ideas also in this book that i uh appreciated um because it was you know the idea when kanye went on his famous tmz rant that right. uh slavery was a choice and obviously it made a lot of people angry um and uh especially coming from someone who admittedly does not read um <laughs> uh, but you stated that the concept of slavery is a choice is based on the idea that africans were passive um can you talk about african rebellion and how africans were indeed not passive when it came to fighting the institution of slavery well, first of all, a footnote, a footnote with regard to Ye. Uh, his children are half Armenian. Mm -hmm. Armenian, uh, the Kardashians, of course, are a partial Armenian descent. Armenia was subjected to a genocide, actually mm. about the same time as the Leo Frank case, at the wow. hands of the Turks, uh, liquidated, almost wiped out. I doubt if Ye would say that that was a choice. Right, the right, the Armenian. right. Because uh, he's, he's actually visited Armenia when he was married to Kim, for example. So it was a particular insult that he made to his family <laughs> yeah. and to us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if he were to be consistent, if he would say slavery was a choice, Armenian genocide was a choice, at least he'd be consistent. Right. No, he's, he's inconsistent. Right. <laughs> now, uh, with regard to rebelliousness, you cannot understand the history of what's called the Atlantic world. That is to say, North America, the Caribbean, Western Europe, without understanding rebelliousness of Africans. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the so-called Glorious Revolution uh, in England, 1688. What basically happens is that to begin with, the African slave trade was under the thumb of the money. And so many of the merchants, the merchant class, they feel that that's unfair. They want in on the action because the African slave trade was one of the most lucrative enterprises known to humankind. You can invest $1 and get $1,700 back. I mean, right. there are those today 
who would sell their firstborn <laughs> for a 1,700% profit, <laughs> right. let alone some African they did not know. So that revolution basically was a revolution, a revolt of the merchants against the monarch. Mm. They took the wings of the monarch, leading to what we have today, where King Charles, as he is called, uh, supposedly is ruling the country, and he's very wealthy, uh, but uh, he is not necessarily the most important political figure in 2023, although he was in 1687 up to the Glorious Revolution. So what happens when the merchants enter the slave trade, the slave trade takes off like a rocket because it's not just one merchant who's trying to monopolize the slave trade. You have uh, numerous merchants who descend upon Africa with the maniacal energy of crazed bees, manacling every African in sight dragging them across the Atlantic, particularly to the Caribbean, Jamaica in particular, Barbados in particular. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that the numbers, the ratios uh, favor the Africans. They outnumber the Europeans sometimes at, at a rate of 10 to 1, 20 to 1. That creates fertile conditions for re rebelliousness and revolt. And so what you see is that at that point, you begin to see Europeans making the great trek to the North American mainland. Mm -hmm. Historically, South Carolina was a twin of Barbados, for example. Yeah. And there in the North American mainland, particularly in South Carolina, uh, they could have a more favorable ratio. But that did not necessarily mean the end of slave rebelliousness. You had a rebellion in New York, 1712. As a matter of fact, uh, I've just uh, written a book that'll be published next year. Oh, wow. Uh, Armed Struggle in 20th century United States. And one of the points of advice that uh, I make to those who might want to consider that enterprise in the <laughs> 21st century is that if you're really serious, you don't make the mistake of the people in the 20th century. Because Quebec, French-speaking Canada, was essential to the revolt of the enslaved in 1712 in New York City. And I dare say that if people want to launch armed struggle, they would not only, in the 21st century, require the assistance of our Cuban comrades, mm -hmm. 90 miles from Florida, they will also need the assistance of our Quebec friends due north of New York City. There was another revolt of the enslaved in New York in 1741. Stoner's Revolt in South Carolina, 1739, perhaps the bloodiest revolt uh, in colonial North America. Um, and in fact, the revolt of the Africans leads directly to 1776. Wow. Because what happens is that London, the colonial power, decides to raise taxes on the settlers so that they could wage a war against the French in Quebec, who they defeat, and the Spanish in Cuba, who they defeat. Because because in the Stoner's Revolt 1739, it was assisted by the Spanish mm -hmm. in Cuba and Florida. Right. Of course, uh, it should not come as a surprise that people who exist upon the free labor of Africans don't want to pay taxes. They don't <laughs> want taxes today. And so taxes becomes a reason for their revolt against London setting up the United States of America post 1776. 
But the revolt of the enslaved continues. Uh, look at the War of 1812, for example. I talk about this in my book, Negro Comrades of the Crown. Here you have the British invade Washington, D.C., burn down the White House. The enslaved Africans join the British in doing so, and then escape on British vessels to Trinidad and Tobago, where their descendants continue to reside. Or look at uh, the Great Dismal Swamp, which incorporates part of North Carolina, north of where you are, mm -hmm. to Southern Virginia. There you have African Maroons, Black mm -hmm. Maroons. They'd escaped the entire jurisdiction of the enslavers. And there's evidence to suggest that when you have Nat's Turner Slave Revolt in Southampton, uh, Virginia, 1831, that the Maroons in the Great Dismal Swamp are essential to that process, not to mention the so-called free Negroes mm. who helped the uh, Nat Turner rebels. So, I mean, I could go on in this vein. Right, right. I mean, I, I think what happens is that people oftentimes talk without knowing <laughs> what they're talking about. Like Jordan Peele, um, Jordan Peele, Keen Peele, their show does it the best when they talk about, when they have like this magical Negro battle because they <laughs> oh, bring yeah. it into a comedy realm. But essentially the magical Negro is like a liter literary device that white people use in a story uh, where they want to like infuse some mysticism. They want to help the main character, like in The Matrix, mm. uh, where, you know what I mean? You know, you're, you're giving this black man all this power to advise a white person, but never the power to actually do anything. Mm. Um, we see this in The Shining. We see this time and time again. Um, and okay, so more specific on the trailer. Um, so the whole problem with the magical Negro is, <laughs> is I feel like this. If you're giving a black person the power, it shouldn't be like, but they can only use it to help white people. That's really weird and creepy. And also it's kind of racist to assume that just because someone's black, that there's some mysticism there. Like that's <laughs> kind of weird because obviously in a spiritual realm, like all, you know, whether you believe whatever you believe, but just that overall mysticism does come from this like Southern trope of black people just being like, oh, they're wise and we'll listen to them and we'll never treat them right, right. you know? And the Magical Negro Society film trailer, because it comes out in a few months, um, is it's like basically this black man, they they induct him into the Magical Society of Negroes, and we find out disappointingly that he is going to be assigned to a white man with the duty of keeping him happy or satiated. Um, and so it's weird because it's like, well, now you have all this power and, and your only goal is to keep him satiated. But then they try to make it seem like they do understand what racism is in the, in the movie because they say, well, we're doing this because white people, when, they're, when they are unhappy, are very dangerous. And so we're trying to mitigate that danger that white people cause by keeping them satisfied. So in that way, being a magical Negro is almost like a self, um, like you're sacrificing yourself for the greater good of other black people in mm, a way. But right. you're doing it for appeasing white people. Right. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm definitely interested in getting your thoughts and opinion on this first question. Um, I heard some recent discussions you were involved in about if, uh, you know, the idea of black Egypt and many were using the term Afrocentrism, um, not you, but uh, many were using the term Afrocentrism as if it means to make ancient cultures black who were not black, like a, a, a thing of blackwashing, I guess, uh, when it's really an intellectual framework from Malefi Asante that approaches history, culture, politics from an African worldview. Um, is this something that you've noticed as far as people using um, uh, 
you know, Afrocentricity out of context? And what are your thoughts on that whole idea? Yes, this is something that has been going on for quite some time. And there's uh, a lot of literature that uh, expresses, you know, basically how to combat that and to more properly define what Afrocentricity is, Afrocentrism, and the like. And so what, what appears to happen, because what people don't understand is that Afrocentricity is a paradigm within the discipline of Africology. Mm -hmm. And so it is a, a research paradigm, an approach to analyzing uh, text as well as individuals who write the text concerning issues regarding uh, African people right. in, in all spectrums of life. So what the layperson does who doesn't study Africology as a discipline, what they'll do is say that any and everybody who talks about Black or African people is an Afrocentrist. Right. <laughs> you know, it's almost saying like anybody that works on a car <laughs> is a uh, is a physicist. Right. Is it is an engineer. Right. Right. Like there's a there's a difference between someone who is a mechanical engineer versus somebody who changes a flat tire or right. learns how to, you know, switch batteries out. So just because I pop the hood <laughs> and I replace the spark plugs does not make me a mechanic, <laughs> let alone a mechanical engineer. Right. And so this is what seems to be the case when it comes to any phenomenon that is associated with uh, Black people or African people. And, you know, as soon as you mention African people and Blackness, <laughs> they try to use Afrocentricity as a euphemism mm. to downplay the analysis of the serious scholars mm. in the field of Africology. Absolutely. It's like it's almost a pejorative now. Yes. And and we have to do a better job of clarifying, mm -hmm. you know, what Afrocentricity is. It as an academic paradigm, how it is used in the evaluation of texts and perspectives, you know, and benefits and issues. And so unfortunately, especially in all fields have this issue, this underlying issue, you know, mm -hmm. it, 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 we're we're more familiar with this with people from the physical sciences, like like uh, quantum, you know, mechanics and quantum field theory and the like. And so you get these laypersons that have read something and they start talking about quantum <laughs> consciousness and, <laughs> and you know the double slit theory and you know nothing appears until you observe, observe it. it. <laughs> so you know, like they don't understand because they don't read mm -hmm. the, the particular text, and so they come across something and now they think that what's in their mind is quantum mechanics. Right. And and that is not the case. And so it's it's, it's a similar thing here with uh, Afrocentricity in terms of a research paradigm within of the larger field of Africology. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what are you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit. Um, 
in your answer, but what are your what are your thoughts on this PR hit that American imperialism is taking with you know everything that's going on uh, with the uh, genocide in Palestine? Because you see that um, globally and domestically, people are like, "Yo, this isn't right," and this idea of of American exceptionalism, exceptionalism seems to be crumbling by the day. Um, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, you are absolutely correct. I mean, there's been severe reputational damage for U.S. imperialism because, let's face it, uh, there would have been a resolution in the United Nations uh, calling for a ceasefire, but for the U.S. government uh, vetoing these resolutions. I should also say, for those who say that there sh should not be uh, Black Americans interested in this conflict, you may not be interested in this conflict, but this conflict is interested in you. Hmm. What I mean by that is that the Zionist lobby, the Israeli lobby, has sworn to defeat a number of Black American members of Congress who they feel are not necessarily on board with regard to supporting Israel. I'm thinking of Andre Carson of Indiana, who happens to be a Muslim, Summer Lee of Western Pennsylvania, uh, Cory Bush of St. Louis. These are all Black members of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, Ilhan Omar, who happens to be of Somali origin from mm -hmm. Minnesota. So in other words, instead of Black voters picking your elected representatives, the Zionist lobby says that they're going to pick. Our <laughs> right. And didn't they try so, to get? Didn't they try to get Hill Harper to run against um, Rashida right. Tlaib? Yeah, they dangled twenty million dollars <laughs> right. uh, before him. And you know, I, I've been on program <laughs> previously, and I'm afraid to say that some of the brothers and sisters said if they'd offered me twenty million dollars. I would have taken the money and run. <laughs> Man, see, see, <laughs> <laughs> see, that's the problem. <laughs> so, so as I said, I mean, this is this is a very serious conflict, and. Um, as we speak, uh, today being December 27th, the conflict continues. Uh, although Israel says that its goal is to destroy Hamas, they have not done so after fighting since October 7th, October 8th. And, uh, of course, they suffered numerous casualties. There have also been credible reports about U.S. nationals uh, flooding into uh, Israel to fight on behalf of the Israelis. And in fact, uh, some of the scenes that I've witnessed uh, from Israel and the occupied territories, West Bank in particular, it reminds me of scenes I saw in the latter stages of the overthrow of white supremacy in Rhodesia and apartheid South, Af South Africa. Wow. Particularly the scene of settlers having rifles slung over their shoulders. Uh, that, that, that particular image is proliferating coming out of Israel. It could have been uh, Rhodesia or Zimbabwe in 1979. It could have been apartheid South Africa in 1993. So, um, and, and I should also mention that one of the most aggressive nations seeking to bring Israel to heel has been South Africa because there's a long memory in South Africa of Israeli collaboration with the apartheid authorities up to and including nuclear collaboration, wow. by the way. Uh, it's no accident that uh, Israel has been dubbed an apartheid state, for example. As a matter of fact, uh, 
to give you one example of the apartheid, uh, imagine you being in Durham, North Carolina, and you had a special license plate that said you couldn't go on, I think, as I recall, it's I-85, for mm -hmm. uh, but you had to take 40. Hmm. 40. Uh, well, that's the sort of system of apartheid that exists between Israel and the occupied territories. Wow. I mean, you know, we talk about a two-state solution, which I think we may be beyond that. But basically, we, we have a two-plate solution, <laughs> two license plates. One license plate, you're on a superhighway. Another license plate, you're on a pockmarked, uh, pothole-written road. Mm. Uh, that's life right now in apartheid Israel. Wow. The authors have written extensively about why the Civil War was over slavery. Um, Dr. Gerald Horn has even written about the role of slavery in the American Revolution. Um, you have a great article about why it's hard for some to admit that the Civil War was over slavery. Uh, can you uh, build on why some people just refuse to admit this fact? Well, um, you know, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, and some of the jobs I've worked at here you'll have co-workers and they'll kind of wear the confederate flag wow. and you'll tell them you're offended and they'll be like oh it's about heritage <laughs> and so you know when I was younger you know a lot of times I didn't know what to say about that I just felt like well I guess to you it's heritage but I think it's a horrible heritage that it's trying to preserve mm. but like when I looked at it from a scholarly level it became like ridiculous um I think some people are unable to accept that it's about slavery because that would show that the one time America split in two, it was behind the condition of Black people. And they don't want to accept that Black people's condition is so important to what American is, like mm. to the American project as a whole. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the idea that this country was built off of the backs of enslaved people um the idea that the wealth of this country was gained by this institution of slavery do you think that is possibly one of the reasons why they like to deny the historical truth of what the civil war is about absolutely um it's it's well known that people would use enslaved people as collateral mm. for bank loans and for property so um my second great grandmother on my father's side was enslaved and she was listed as property in in an estate mm -hmm. um along with her children so that's just an example of you know black people were used as as collateral so when slavery was ab abolished after the civil war it made a lot of southerners instantly broke because not only did some of their lands were confiscated but their actual human property was confiscated and as a result they lost that as a a wealth so yeah, yeah the, the money that america has and that became america is from off the backs of enslaved people. The White House was built in part <laughs> enslaved people's labor. So it's really hard to like say you care about America and mm -hmm. just don't care about Black people's history. But a lot of people, it just makes them feel very uncomfortable. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I was, and you mentioned the Confederate flag. I was riding through uh, South Carolina a few months ago, and I forgot what city I was in, but there was a huge uh, American flag on the freeway, and I think it was put up by the Daughters of Confederacy. And this whole idea of this is our heritage. Um, what do you think they're actually trying to say there? You know, because when we look at what this 
quote unquote heritage means to us, right? It means in slavery, I mean, enslavement, it means oppression. It means uh, Jim Crow. It means all of these uh, things that have been used to, to keep us in a fixed position in the social hierarchy of America. Whenever they say it, they 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 tend to kind of veil it as if, oh no, we're just celebrating our family history. But I mean, I think we know that it's more than that. Like, it, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, it's like basically their heritage is inseparable from the history of slavery. Mm. That's the part that they're unwilling to acknowledge. So yes, like the Southern uh, uh, culture, the way we cook, the things we celebrate, the way we dress, the the politeness that we supposedly have. All of these are relics of slavery, but they kind of take a colorblind racism approach to it. So by that, they're just like, oh, no, we just loved everything else. Like, we <laughs> love the sweet tea. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't care about the slavery. And it's like, when we realized that the reason why you were able to enjoy that sweet tea is because in, in Louisiana and Florida, they had sugar, sugar slavery. Mm. So, mm. you know, you can't separate their pleasures from the discomfort of others. And that's what we talk about in the modern era when we talk about white privilege and how it was created in shadow slavery, how it was maintained in Jim Crow and maintained in the post-civil rights era through like a, a colorblind racism. Absolutely. Yeah, but well, well, and that's the one thing I actually don't think it's crazy. And that's, that's one thing mm. I've really come to appreciate uh, after spending the time doing this research and some other work uh, it is, is that, the and and being even just in media studies uh mm -hmm. because i have learned to have i just have a deep, different appreciation now for for the effort and the sophistication of the psychological warfare that we're suffering right so i'm not trying to excuse us all for our bad decisions but i am trying to be a little more uh, uh, understanding or objective and trying to uh, really to understand to, to to have an analysis mm -hmm. that yeah, we should do better with with what you know our decisions. Yes, we could do this. Yes, we could do that. But the reality is, uh, ultimately, ultimately, billions of dollars and decades of intense study and research has gone on, gone into, and continues to go into studying how to manipulate most of hmm. us, how to to create narratives, how to. Uh, d d uh, 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 create a media and digital environment of messaging uh, that a way, and that's ultimately what I've been trying to show with my book is that what we end up seeing is that what we think, because we see black people having the conversation, we think that what we're hearing is actually a black analysis. Hmm. And what we're hearing are very white, conservative, capitalist, reactionary, colonizing, psychological warfare, implanted <laughs> messages being delivered through black spaces. And it's it's been encouraged. So it's I, I it's not crazy to me uh that that even when it becomes frustrating in the way that that some people react to me personally. Yeah. It, I have to alt I, I do try to remember <laughs> that what they're responding to has been something that has been literally constructed by the most powerful and and wealthy uh, uh sectors of the society for a long time i mean that's really what i mean what mass communication research in the field of communication studies was developed to do yeah to organize the study and research into manipulating public opinion and to today they talk about it in terms of cognitive infrastructure the, the development of how we think mm -hmm. uh uh 
and it's it, and 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 we are largely unaware of the forces that are involved and the 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 resources and the and the 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 ways that we're manipulated. It's and it's very sophisticated. And no society in the world has ever suffered what we're suffering right now here in the United States. It is it is it's it's you know my contradiction is it's a beautiful system. I mean, mm. it really is remarkable if you if you really start to think about how that 0.1% manipulate the narrative. And it's not some some mystical conspiracy. It's it's organized, funded, concerned research that's doing this. They're concerned. I'll stop here, but if people are paying attention or heard, or maybe they caught it, maybe you and your audience have caught this already, but the, you know, Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the, the Anti-Defamation League was caught on tape telling his audience uh, that he was trying to fundraise from. He said, look, Israel is, is, is losing. He said, we have a, in fact, he said it three times. We have a major, major, major <laughs> crisis mm. of narrative because most young people, he was saying, even young Jews don't agree with Israel at this point. And he's saying, we got to raise money and get more people. They were talking about funding people on TikTok to, to promote Israel. They yeah. were talking about getting, you know, raising hundreds of millions of dollars to to create new pop propaganda campaigns so so that's just this one new effort right this is but this is something that has been been uh uh, uh orchestrated by the military in this country by the political elite in this country by the ruling elite uh for 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 a very long time so i i'm sympathetic at least oh for uh, sure or, to why we end up being fooled by it myself included